Hello, and welcome to the Good Life Community Church podcast. Wherever you are listening, we hope that you might be encouraged, challenged, and that you might hear the invitation to be a part of the transformative work of God. At the moment, we're in quite a big series tackling the book of Revelation. Mike has called it Liberating Revelation, and he did a two-part introduction. So if you've missed that, be sure to check it out. Otherwise, today we're hearing from Hannah Bartle. I really hope you enjoy what she has to share. I get the opportunity to speak on the seven churches, the letters letters to the seven churches. And there's so much in there, guys. And I was really trying to get it all in one. I thought we'll be here for hours. So um, we're going to do two parts. Today is going to be kind of an overview of the letters and the common message, the collective message of all of them. Um, And then next week, we might pick apart a few of the specific churches and some of the messages there too. So today is kind of a bit of info and an intro into these letters and why they exist. And then um, we'll go from there. And hopefully what I've put together makes sense for you today. So thanks for being here. So we know that the book of Revelations is actually a few letters all put together. And it was written to shape a church that was surrounded by the creeping ways of Babylon. And if you haven't been following the series so far, Babylon is used as a symbolic reference for the Roman Empire. And it's not just the Roman Empire, though. It's empire and the power and the greed and the oppression and control that is this spirit of empire. That's what this is about. So if I refer to Babylon, what, what John was referring to was Rome. But it's also the power and control and the darkness that is empire. So John writes this whole book because these things, though, Babylon, this empire spirit, I guess, was influencing the churches. And so he, the whole of Revelation was to be passed around to all of the churches. And then he writes these specific letters to these seven churches who were actual churches that actually existed in first century AD. And I don't know if I'm going to pronounce them right, so bear with. If you know the better pronunciation, I apologise. There were Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. And so these are the seven churches. And we know that the number seven is also, again, if you've been following along, the number seven's a symbolic number and it represents fullness and completion. So even though these churches are going to be addressed... And there's going to be some things that Jesus says, hey, you need to work on. It's not insignificant that it's seven churches that are also addressed because it's still the, it's a representation of the fullness and the completion of the work Jesus has done, that now his spirit is at work within the world. So these letters were all passed around. So even though there was a letter that was going to be given to one church, all of the churches would have at some point read all of them. So that's why there's not just an individual message, it's a collective message, and they all work together. Um, And John is trying to give a specific message. So, the book of Revelation is both a critique of Rome, but also of the churches too. And John, exiled in Patmos, um, he writes this and he speaks to these churches in regards to Rome, and it's a pastoral letter. So it's really one of discipleship. Even though there's lots of symbolism, it's really this pastoral letter to help disciple these churches. 
And so this, these seven letters, because it's at the beginning too, it kind of spans from chapter one through to chapter three, all these seven letters, they kind of act as the catalyst and the foundation for the rest of the book. It's why John's writing it, because there are these churches he's wanting to write to. To live as a follower of the Lamb, and we've in, our, in the past few, few weeks, Mike's been sharing with how there's this, throughout the whole book, this battle between the Lamb, the way of the Lamb, which is peace and self-sacrificial love, it's Jesus, or the way of Babylon, of empire, of power, of oppression, of control, of violence. It's these two ways, these two battles. And to live as a follower of the Lamb in this empire, the church is needed to, and we still need to, keep the face of the Lamb in view. So John starts his letters to the churches at the end of chapter 1 by recording his vision of Christ. And this is what he records. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And these represent the church. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a gold sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were blazing like fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. And so John really wants to first have the churches fix their eyes upon Jesus. And he attributes features that describe the Son of Man from Daniel and the Ancient One. He uses language from the Old Testament to shape this image of Jesus. And he does this to remind the hearers that Jesus is Lord, which is the entire point, anyway, of this whole letter, that Jesus is Lord, but that Jesus is also with them and is present with them. He walks amongst the lampstands, it says. Jesus is walking amongst the churches. He's not the God far away looking down. He is walking in with his church. And John does this so that he can offer security that the all-powerful one will protect the church. It says at the end of chapter one, Jesus says to John, do not be afraid, but it's not just to John. It's to all of the church. Do not be afraid because I am with you. They will be kept safe no matter what is going to come, and they will share in Jesus' victory. The vision of Jesus is also a sign of hope that the one who was killed is now living and forever in glory. And as the church shares in this faithful witness, they also participate in the victory over empire and over death. And this vision is also a call to discipleship, to obediently follow Christ and to not compromise to the power of empire. So John turns their eyes, he turns our eyes to Jesus. And the image of Jesus that is cast is then echoed throughout all of the letters. The structure of the letters, we'll see on the next slide, I think, that there's a structure to all of these little individual letters. It starts with the image of Jesus, and each time it's different. So we have the image of Jesus, we have praise for the church, there's an affirmation except for one, we'll see that later. Critique, except for Smyrna and Philadelphia, there's a warning 
And then there's a promise. So each one of these letters, when you read them through, you'll see, oh yeah, they follow a pattern. So let's start with the image of Jesus. The image of Jesus in this book, it's continually, John continually refers to Jesus because Jesus is, he's the whole point. This is all about the revelation of Jesus, revealing Jesus. And so to live as a follower of the Lamb, the churches need to turn their eyes to him. And so we can look at, I've kind of summarised for us, because if we're going to read through each one, we'll be here forever. So on the next slide we've got, these are the images of Jesus. So in Ephesus, he walks amongst the lampstands, and this represents that he is present with his people. In Smyrna, he says, I am the first and the last. I was dead, but now alive. He is victorious over death. In Pergamum, he is the one who has the double-edged sword. He is the one whose word is truth and power. In Thyatira, he is the son of God whose eyes are like fire and feet like bronze. He is the king. This symbolises him as, his, as king and ruler over all things. In Sardis, he holds the spirit, seven spirits, which is the Holy Spirit. He is the fullness of God revealed. In Philadelphia, he is holy and true. He holds the keys of David and there's this real declaration of his messianic image. He is the Messiah. And in Laodicea, he is the amen, that final word, the faithful and true witness, ruler of all creation. He holds all authority. All is his. So straight away, in every letter, John turns the church's eyes to, this is who Jesus is. Don't forget, this is the security and the hope. This is who Jesus is. He is present. He is victorious over death. He is the king. He is the fullness of God. He holds all authority. Everything is his. So there's real hope in this message. This is who Jesus is. And then it follows with the affirmations. So we see our eyes are turned to Jesus, the church is turned to Jesus, and Jesus says, to Ephesus, I see your good deeds and your hard work. To Smyrna, I know your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. In Pergamum, you remain true to my name. In Thyatira, I see your good deeds, your love and faith, service and perseverance. In Sardis, a few, Sardis, yeah, they're not doing great. A few have not soiled their clothes. In Philadelphia, good deeds. They've done good deeds. They've kept to Christ's word amongst persecution. And Laodicea, there's no affirmation for them. They're that final letter. And Jesus doesn't have anything good to say to that church. Each church has its own calling and its own individual problems as well, which we'll see. But what we see here is that Jesus affirms in the churches their faithful witness. He's not just going, you guys have doing everything wrong. He actually affirms the good things that they're doing, their witness in amongst Babylon. The words that actually occur when you read through all of them, the words that occur most in these affirmations are works and perseverance or endurance. Being a faithful witness of enduring work is about this public expression and embodiment of the Lord Jesus. These believers were like prophets in Babylon. They're the Christians living publicly while remaining faithful to Jesus. They walk in the way of the Lamb and they will dwell in the New Jerusalem, but 
Jesus also is going to hold them to account because he sees the influence of Babylon, of empire. It's there. And so it needs to be called out. So there were five churches that though they were doing good things, they had allowed this influence of Babylon, of empire, of the Roman way to influence what was happening within and amongst them. And so in Ephesus, they abandoned their mutual love for each other. They did great things, but they'd forgotten to love one another. They forgot that in doing so, that's actually embodying the victory of the Lamb, of following the Lamb. And so the warning and the consequence is that, remember, hey, you've fallen away. Repent. And that word repent, remember, it's that change your thinking. Turn in the other direction. Turn away from unloving each other. Turn back to loving each other. Change your way of thinking. Otherwise... The church will not survive. Jesus says, I will remove the lampstand. The church won't survive without love for one another. In Pergamum, they accommodate falsehood and practice idolatry. They ate food that was offered to different gods in different temples. The expectation within the Greco-Roman world was that to be a part of society, even to be um, someone who was involved in trade, you had to participate in the feasts and all of these things that they would offer to the different gods who were like the patron gods of, of all of these different, even trade guilds. So to have any kind of influence or to be anything within society, you had to kind of participate and Pergamum had started to do that. And much like Israel did as they turned to worship other gods, they'd allowed that to happen again. And and John uses that imagery again of Israel doing the same thing. And so Jesus says, repent, turn the other direction. Turn away from what has been taught to you by false teachers. And Christ will come. The consequence is he will come and deal with those who are false and who are holding to these false teachings. In Thyatira, they accommodate morally to avoid economic and social disempowerment. They're very similar to Pergamum. They're allowed these different practices for fear of not being able to gain economically, for kind of not having influence. They allow these other practices to come in. And what they forget is that it's in dying to pride and greed and lust and power that that's when they follow the crucified lamb. And so Christ holds them to account. John turns their eyes back to Christ. And the warning there is that if they don't turn, they will suffer. In Sardis, they've become apathetic. They forget that following the lamb is a faith, a faith journey It's a continual journey that brings restoration, but it means it's a journey of love in action. They've soiled their garments, meaning, and there's there's different interpretations, but this idea that um, in different practices within the different temples to the gods and that kind of thing, your garments would have been dirtied and soiled. And so that's this idea again that they've kind of just become pretty lax and just, yeah, we might do that. We'll, We'll participate in that bit and that bit and whatever. And so the consequence and the warning is, hey, wake up, strengthen what, what remains. Otherwise, again, you will cease to exist. The church will cease to exist. And in Laodicea, they rely on self-sufficiency and misguided 
prosperity. They think they're doing really well. They're kind of wealthy. They're well-to-do. And we'll probably... I'm going to talk a little bit more next week on that church because there's a whole lot of things in there. But um, really it comes down to they relied on themselves and not on God. They think they're, they're clothed, they see everything, they're rich. And Jesus says, you are blind and poor and naked because you have not relied on me. And so the, I guess he challenges them to be made over into followers of the Lamb. And so what we see across these five churches is that collectively they have compromised and they've allowed the values of Babylon, that is the values of the Roman Empire, of greed, lust, power, apathy, selfishness, oppression, allowed these things to be at work within their own church. And ultimately, as we see throughout the rest of Revelation, It comes down to the worship of empire or lamb. And they've allowed the worship of the empire to come in instead of the worship of the lamb. Now in Smyrna and Philadelphia, they aren't critiqued by Jesus. There is no warning of the things they're doing and the consequence. Jesus encourages them in the face of danger and persecution. These two churches were very close um, were in cities in which um, there was a lot of tension between themselves and even just the Jewish people. They weren't allowed in the synagogues. If you read through the letters, you'll see a lot to do. The synagogue is mentioned a lot, and there was a tension that these Christians weren't allowed to participate. They weren't really the ones worshipping God, and they were persecuted for this, cast out of society for it. And so Jesus in those letters just really encourages them to stay strong, even to the point of death. But these are the ones who have not succumbed to the allure of Babylon. Even if it means to make their lives easier, they haven't done it. And so while each church receives a message that reflects its own situation, there is this one overarching issue, and that is whether or not to compromise. Specifically, will these churches be faithful witness to both Jesus, faithful to him, but also a faithful witness of who he is. And if there's anything we can take away today, it's to consider, are we being faithful witnesses of who Jesus is today, in our own midst and in the community? And so for this particular first century church, there was this challenge to refrain from participating in those cultural norms of the empire, even if it results in social, economic and political consequences. That was the real challenge. It's still a challenge today for us. But Jesus doesn't end with, here's the warnings, here's the consequences, suffer. There is promise because our God is a good God And so he always ends with a promise. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious. And remember this victory, being victorious, this is the one that follows the lamb who was slain, the one who follows the way of peace and of love and self-sacrifice. That is the one who is victorious to the one who follows in the way of the Lamb. They will eat of the tree of life in God's paradise. 
they will be given the crown of life. They will be given hidden manna, that is intimacy with Christ and sustenance from Christ. They will be co-heirs with him in his inheritance as rulers. These are all mentioned. These are the promises in the letters. They will be clothed in white and they will walk with the Lord. They will never be parted from him. They will be pillars within the temple. They will be the strong ones that hold each other up. They will share in Christ's throne and in his rule. These are the promises. And collectively, these promises that are made to the church are actually summed up at the end of Revelation. We go all the way to the end in chapter 21, when all things are renewed and Jesus is returning to his bride. It says, those who are victorious will inherit all of this. And this is coming back to the promises made at the beginning. For those who are victorious, those who follow the way of the Lamb, who are loving, self-sacrificing, who make peace, who are the ones who are trying to be the image of Jesus in the world, for those who do this, they will inherit all of those promises. The point of the promises is to encourage the church that they are the children of God and they will receive the full restoration of all things. They will share in Christ's rule and in his reign. They are not abandoned And though they may suffer, all is not lost because Christ will redeem them. So the promises aren't just one for you and one for you. All of the promises, this life that Christ will give is for all of the church. And it's still the encouragement today. One of the interesting things I found, um, I've been reading a bit on some recent scholarly articles and there's um, one biblical scholar who's actually found, and we're going to look at this really briefly, the echoes of salvation history in these seven letters. And so the warnings and the promises that are given within each letter also echo Israel and salvation history. And I find this fascinating because in the end, this revelation, it is the revealing of who Jesus is, the revelation of what he has done. And John, so cleverly, the writers of the New Testament were amazing. They were very clever, but they draw on the history of of God's revelation of himself throughout Scripture. And so even here in these seven letters, we have these little echoes of the history in Ephesus, It actually says, he says, remember that where you have fallen from and then you will eat from the tree of life. So we go right back to the garden and then in Smyrna, the next church, there are reference to affliction and poverty, like what the Israelites experienced within Egypt. And then in Pergamum's the exodus in the desert, you've worshipped other gods. That's what they did then but I will give you hidden manna. So there's a reference to what happens in that part of their salvation history. In Thyatira, we have these these kingly references. We enter into the monarchy period. And and Jesus says, I know that you followed the ways of Jezebel. It's all of the ways in which Israel failed as the monarchy. But the promise is, I will give you authority again. You will rule with me, co-heirs with me. We head into Sardis and there's this exile. You are nearly dead. The church was nearly dead. There was only a small remnant. But I will not blot out your name was the promise. And we know that in the exile, they were still not totally blot out. There was a remnant. And then in Philadelphia, we have the rebuilding. There's all this mention of building of the temple. 
we come back into Israel and there's the rebuilding and the promise that you will be pillars in the temple. And then we come to Laodicea. You are poor and blind and naked. But the promise is I will come and eat with you, Jesus says. And what do we know Jesus did? He ate with the poor and the blind and those who were the outcast. Jesus came. And we ha- so we have this picture, even in this, of the history of salvation. And I think it's just so beautiful to see these little gems that come out of Christ's salvation and his promise to his people. Christ is the beginning, the middle and end. He says that in one of the letters, but we also notice within the structure of these letters that he is the beginning, the middle and the end. In Revelation, who Jesus is and what he has done is the focus. So even in the structures from chapters 1 to 3, he is the focus. He is the beginning as he walks through the lampstands of the churches. He's in the middle in each letter. In each letter, actually, he says, I will come. There's this anticipation, I will come. And then in the final letter, he says, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. Beginning, middle and end. And the context of that saying, it's a very well-known saying. Here I am, I stand at the door and I knock. I think most people have probably heard that. And often it's taught that it's this idea of Jesus is standing at the door of your heart and he's knocking, will you let him in? What's fascinating is that, again, scholars say, actually, this is an echo to, there are a lot of parables that Jesus told of the master coming to his home and knocking, of the servants waiting for the master. And this is actually this echo of, it's Jesus returning to his own home and the servant, the one who is waiting for him, who waits for him, who is awake, he gets up, he opens the door and welcomes Jesus in. So it's beautiful, the imagery of someone, of Jesus knocking on our heart. Yes, totally. It's a beautiful, a beautiful picture. But even more wonderful is this idea that here it's alluding to, again, because we know that this book is about Jesus coming back and restoring all things. This is this image of Jesus saying, I've come, I'm here. Are you awake? Are you ready? Let me in. I'm coming back to restore all things. So there's this final promise. He's coming back. He's here. So this is a lot. There's a lot in this. And next week, look, we can go into a whole lot of other stuff. And there's going to be lots of questions. And any questions you have, we'd love to hear them. It's good. It's good to have questions and to ask but what really struck me, and I, I found it tricky getting through all of the stuff and trying to figure out how to structure it. What do I include? What do I tell people? I just kept coming back to Jesus. That this is about him. In these letters, there's warnings, there's promise. But throughout it all, it's Jesus. And it's the continual calling to turn our eyes back to Jesus and to be faithful witness to him. And so perhaps today, it's just that calling to turn our eyes back to Jesus. If we go back to Amos, my darling husband, 
Back to that, the slide of the image of Jesus, the images of Jesus. That he is present, he is with us. He is victorious over death and the powers of darkness and sin. His word is truth and power. That he holds all things. He is the King of kings. He is the fullness of God revealed and his spirit is here with us. He is the Messiah. He holds all authority. He holds all things. This is Jesus. And the message is the same for us now. So we're going to pray and then if you're able to stand, we're going to sing what a beautiful name because Jesus. But let's turn our eyes back. Remember who it is that we actually say we follow, that we are faithful witness to. Lord God, we just thank you that you sent your son, not to point a condemning finger, not to say how bad we were, but to come and to set us free from the power of sin and death. And that we now live in that freedom, Jesus, we thank you. Lord Jesus, we love you. Would you continue to turn our hearts back to you, turn our eyes back to who you are, Lord, as we continue to walk in your way and to bear your image. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Good Life Podcast today. Remember that you can stay up to date with the podcast by subscribing on whichever platform you're listening to right now. If you're interested in our ongoing conversation where we're delving deeper and asking questions about what we're talking about on Sundays, be sure to check out the Pondering episodes in the same feed. Otherwise, we would love it if you could like, follow, and even give us a five-star review. It all helps in getting the good news out there. You can also head to our website, goodlife.org.au, or our YouTube for video content and resources. Until next time, peace. Peace.